Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ship Show, where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Uh, and tonight, who's here with me? Uh, this is Yusuf uh, at Build Scientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. And this is Seth Thomas at CheesePlus on Twitter. And how was your guys' week? Pretty good. Did you follow my advice from last week and keep the builds green? Uh, I've been trying to, I, I think for the most part, yeah. They've, they've been, well, actually, I, I did have a couple builds fail this past week, but yeah, nothing to worry too much about. Oh, it's sad time. Seth? My, my builds are always red, but that's be, that's only because we haven't finished implementing Travis integration. So Travis basically yells at me every time I check in code because it doesn't know how to test it. It makes me very sad. That could be a good motivator, though. Well, yeah, it's like every every check, and it's like Travis is like, this failed, this failed. And I'm like, but it works, Travis. Please don't hate me. <laughs> so, Paul, how was your week? My week was interesting. Uh, I actually spent most of the week getting all of the stuff for the show into iTunes and getting the RSS feed up. And we actually had a bug report about the RSS feed just today. It turns out that I didn't do the link right, so it worked if you tried to get to the RSS, the podcast RSS link off the front page, it worked fine. And if you tried to get to it from any other page on the website, it worked not fine. But I fixed that. So, um, yeah, we're in the iTunes Music Store, which is pretty cool. And so all of that stuff is set up. So that's what I spent my week doing. Well, excellent. Glad to hear it. Yeah. So uh, episode four's topic uh, tonight, rolling back code seems like a simple enough prospect, right? Or is it? We're actually going to talk through the hows, whys, wins, and what to do when bad code gets deployed or shipped to the world. But first up tonight, as we always do the news and views segment, uh, I read this week that CDE open sourced. Uh, I don't know if that was a laugh or or not. <laughs> I thought this was particularly worth discussing because, I mean, CDE is is kind of super old i mean it was uh uh you guys are familiar with cd right yeah, yeah. I, i'm just i'm just curious why I, I it's not that it's a bad thing it's just ooh, and then everyone's kind of like oh well it's still ugly as sin so why do we care i mean it, it's it's interesting and i approve of it that that it's now open source but eh yeah, exactly. I think that was, it was funny. I, my first response was like, oh, this is neat. I like remember though that really ugly interface back when I was like in high school and I was like, oh, I'm on a Unix machine, you know, you know, like uh, Jurassic Park, that, that girl at the end where she's like, this is Unix. I know you. Yeah. That was what I kind of thought of. So I thought it was cool in that regard. But then it was like, you see this more and more where, you know, kind of Sun did this with Solaris, where they kind of do, these organizations are like open sourcing this code that's super old and I don't, is it just novelty? Are people actually, are there people still running CDE and they want the source code and this is useful? I don't, I don't know. That's, well, yeah, I, I'm confused on that. Yeah, What I was going to mention was, I think the, the interesting thing is maybe the, uh, they mentioned that they're going to be open sourcing Motif. Yes. And I was just going to say that I, I think maybe they're, you know, I would be kind of interesting, you know, interested rather in, in digging through that, uh, maybe not digging through that code, but just at least taking a look at it, you know, just seeing, you know, how they built Motif as opposed to any other similar um, graphical toolkits like uh, GTK or um, whatever they use on, uh, I guess, Qt uh, on the uh, KDE side. But the CDE itself, you know, as a desktop environment, doesn't really interest me. 
But well, you can now build it and run it on your HBox box that you have in the closet. Mm. One interesting tidbit, uh, and, and uh, to your point, Yusuf, uh, I guess the full tarball is 65 megs, so it could be that, you know, as, as more of this older source code comes out, I mean, maybe it's uh, will be instructive from a kind of academic computer science software engineering point of view about what kind of tricks people had to take when, you know, you're dealing with 25 megahertz processors trying to do an environment like that. That could be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting is archaeology. Yeah, yeah. Old bones and CDE tarballs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we, I had another news item this week. Mozilla decided to shift off of its mirror network for uh, distribution of not only Firefox but updates in favor of a CDN. They actually did a, a test where they found that outside – so they, they set up an A-B test. And they found that outside of North America and Western Europe, almost 13% uh, average higher – installation rate from download, uh, and I actually was looking at the data, it was anywhere from about 7% to 20% in certain cases. And so it, I thought it was worthy to point out because Mozilla has had their, I mean, it's the mirror network has been part of the Firefox story for a really long time. It's just interesting to kind of see the shift. What do you guys think about it? Well, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a completely reasonable thing to do with the volume that they are at now. There is, there's a, there's a very, very fine line when you're running, you know, your if, if I'm not sure if you guys have ever been to the CentOS wiki download page, you know, that's great when I need to get those ISOs, but I think it's totally reasonable that Firefox or that Mozilla at large is taking a more is is getting rid of the mirrors and going with their own CDN. I think that makes complete and total sense in terms of performance and at the volume they're at. Um, and I also recall they had some issues with the mirrors because they weren't, weren't able to guarantee security, and so maybe this is another way that they can take further control over that whole experience. Yeah, so, you know, that's a really astute point. It was unclear. So they had the, the download data, uh, and they were using a system they called Funnel Cake, which is actually something they designed for tracking the funnel, right? Where do they lose people in the download and installation process? Uh, and that, that system is actually a couple of years old now. But what was interesting is that they have, they have that data, but it's also kind of culturally why we're, especially outside of North America and Western Europe, you know, did did was where there's something affected by that by you know not trusting the mirror network or they there have been had been problems more with the uh, install packages not so much the updates because those are signed by the update system but yeah that that had been a problem and it's interesting to think about well in addition to this this test data that they have you know were were there social reasons for that that people did or didn't trust things from when it didn't come from a, a CDN so. I don't know who all pays attention to that, but that would be interesting if they had some, you know, somebody's actually like, oh, wait, I didn't get this from a CDN, a boarding download. Right, right, yeah. Well, Seth, you had read something this week about uh, ops, 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 ops code. Uh, so Opscode, uh, this week, uh, so it was on, on Friday, actually, they released what they're calling Test Kitchen. Now, they, a lot of people have been advocating test-driven development for Chef for a while now. Uh, they had... Uh, there were talks on it at the conference this year, and the problem was there are there are a few tools out there, and there wasn't really a clear, complete and total winner, or or more, and more importantly, not really an ops code endorsed. You know, officially there was there's Food Critic for linting, there's Chef Spec, um, there's Cucumber Chef. There are a few others out there, and no one really decided on something. So Test Kitchen is what uh, Ops Code wrote, 
And this is a way that actually uses Vagrant with another project called Bento. Now, Bento is something that OpsCode has done in-house to use another open source project called Vwe, which then builds Vagrant boxes, and then they run their entire test suite through these custom-built boxes so that they can do you know, testing on lots and lots of systems. All through this, all through this small virtualized interface. Um, so it's a really cool project, and should kind of give people who are using Chef a better, saner way to be able to test their cookbooks on multiple platforms without as much headache. Nice. Yeah, that. Looks I good. know it's. I know it's been a problem for me. So, you know, you write a cookbook and you test it on one OS. You're like, ah, that should be fine, and it never is. And you know, so if you had something like this where you can just kind of kick out a test where it actually like boots up, installs, does the whole, you know, whole end-to-end test, and you don't really have to do much manually. Yeah, I, I think what I like about this is that it's, it's taking infrastructure as, a, uh, as code to kind of a next level. I mean, a lot of these tools uh, or um, development strategies like TDD, BDD, and the tools that come along with them have traditionally, you know, been um, in a lot of, uh, uh, you know, standard development uh, practices, but you know, it's nice to see these sort of bubble their way up into uh, infrastructure as code. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's super nice, especially when you can now, you know, I can my VM is now code. It's no longer this box I need to ask somebody to set up in some you know server room. I can run a full end-to-end test from you know bare metal, you know bare OS, all the way up through my application stack. Do a bunch of tests on it and then burn it down, and you know it takes maybe ten minutes. That's pretty huge. It'll be great to see how people kind of extend this project and, and start using it for the ways it was intended, but also interesting new ways that uh, OpsCode had, didn't have to use it for. Well, uh, next up, uh, rolling back source code on the ship show. Well, welcome back. So tonight we're talking about rolling back code. Hey, how do we stop the run? Who are you? I'm the Metro editor. How do we stop the run? We don't stop the run. I mean, we had to. The guy uh, breaks in with a gun. Put the gun to your head. How do you stop the run? Hit the kill button. Thank you. Hey, 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 you don't touch that. Where's the key? Nobody touches that Give me a key. And so, like in that situation, we've all probably run up against either roll back a website, roll back a production code, or get updates out to users in the case of a client application where rolling back is a little more complicated than a web application deployment. So we thought we'd take some time to talk about challenges and experiences with code rollbacks and deployment rollbacks and talk through the state of the art when it comes to that and where industry is going with respect to rollback. So, Yusuf, you know, you, you had a lot to actually say about this topic. Uh, we'll start with, like, what, what do you guys consider a rollback? Yeah, I, you know, I think a rollback for me is if you, you know, in production, uh, if you're running at a, at, a, at, a, at a particular state and, you know, even if that state isn't the most optimal state, whatever state that is that you're running in, and you apply some sort of a change or a set of changes to, to, to modify that state, and then you, you sort of say, oops, something doesn't work right. I want to get back to that original state that I was in before I applied that change. So in, in very simplistic terms, that to me is, is a rollback. But from a functional standpoint, you know, rollback is getting uh, you, you know, your, your application, whether it's a web application or web service or what have you, back to your, your previous running state. 
Okay. So, so the interesting thing about that, you're talking about the web application. And so a lot of times, though, people say, well, can't we just roll back? And and you guys probably know more about this situation. I'm sure, Seth, with doing game system deployments and stuff like that, sometimes it's not just code, right? You might have a database change. You might have something where it's actually an atomic state of the application to another atomic state, and then actually doing a rollback is not as simple as kind of doing an SVN update or a get update to a particular release um, or get checkout. So, you know, what are what are some of the things that people often might not think about when doing rollbacks? Well, that's like us. You, actually, you actually kind of nailed it right there. That's there were, there were two kinds of rollbacks, especially for game stuff that were common. One was the easy one where you actually just rolled back the code. So you're, you didn't have any schema changes on the database. You didn't have anything, you know, crazy. So it was just, you literally just, you know, roll, you know rolled back. So you had a, a, you know, a snapshot of good code and, you know, say it didn't pass the QA smoke test. Say they started noticing crashing on a number of different clients. You could just roll it back. You'd say at the version you're at, no harm, no foul. Now, we had maintenance windows in which to smoke test these things. There were times where things did go wrong outside of that window, and when you're playing with database updates, it's especially when your database updates represent, say, a player economy, something that is <laughs> not is is something that is not exactly. It's not just like oh, it's just you know we can rebuild this. Um, you need to you know that is your authoritative data for you know who has this much money and things like that. Um, and if you get that wrong, then you have these occupy. Yeah, in your game. Yeah, it's it's very it's very difficult. I've never seen one of those done. Those those have always been when we bring in somebody who's an expert on it. You you avoid those at all costs. I've seen uh, sometimes we've just you know if we knew it was bad within an hour we just reverted to the last good snapshot which we took before say a maintenance window. There are times where the the change is so breaking that you need to do that. Um, but again, it's always a, it's always a severity thing. But rolling back is was something that was managed as part of the testing process. So if we did roll back, we were ideally doing it before any players got their hands on it. Well, so that brings up a good point uh, and a good question. You know, should rollback plans be tested? And and I think the answer is kind of a no-brainer. Of course, you'd want to test that stuff. But how do you go about doing it? Is it always as simple as just having a staging environment and then trying to revert your staging environment? Or yeah, you know, I I think you know again, it depends on what you're you're going to be rolling back and where you're going to be rolling this back. I mean, in production. Um, a rollback can be as simple as okay. Well, I have a symlink, and then I'm 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 simplifying this to uh, a previous release, and uh, let's throw a load balancer in, into the mix, and I'm going to pull you know my cluster or uh, you know set of nodes out of load balancer rotation, you know roll back, restart if I have to restart to um, to load you know any new uh, any new config or uh, previous config, and then put that cluster or whatever was changed back into load balancer rotation, or you know if we're talking about content um, on a web application. It could be, you know, rolling back to a previous version of your content management system, or you know, if you're if you've just got static HTML, just you know, rolling back again to to a, a previous uh, document path on your on your web server. Um, so, well, you know, it's interesting. The it termed in the question, you know, should a rollback plan be tested? That's actually something that you find a lot of organizations may not even actually have a rollback plan. And so they may be using tools that actually support that functionality. But a lot of times, um, you know, a rollback is effectively a release. 
And so if you have a release process that you go through that involves maybe marketing or product management or other groups of people, you know, that are that are involved in that release process, then they need to be, by definition of that, involved in the rollback process. Uh, and that's actually something I actually find where people have people have the button to do the rollback, but they don't have the process around exactly what happens when you push that button, at least not as well-defined as when you do a release. I, I, think, there's, I think the process should be just as well-defined around the rollback, or, or it should be treated as, as you said, if it's just another release, then all of your tools should treat it just like it's any other release, even if it is even if it's rolling back to like a last known good state. It's not necessarily, you can view it as a rollback or you can just view it as changing, you're changing the state of the system back to this other state. You're not right. necessarily rolling it back, but you're changing its state to this other point in time, um, which may or may not have been the last known good state if, you know, if say something's really outside of bounds. Well, it's interesting too because I know some some organizations. I've heard Google does this. They actually have days where they go and they'll test their failure procedures. I know they do it with some of their build infrastructure stuff. So they'll actually pull the plug purposely and make sure that the backup servers come online. And the the interesting thing about that is they actually do that as part throughout the year because you know sometimes maybe the rollback plan may have changed. Mm-hmm. for a particular piece of infrastructure and then they don't really want the first time it's ever been executed to be the time when everybody's running around because you're actually in the middle of middle of a rollback situation. Well that's 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 always a that's always a good plan. That's why tools like, you know, Netflix's, you know, Chaos Monkey kind of kind of make a lot of sense. You want to know what's going to happen when when is constantly hitting the fan. And that would, you know, that's a way, that's a good way to, if, if you know that you can survive a rollback when you don't actually need one, it makes everyone a lot more comfortable when you're, you know, rolling back production code because you have trust in the tools and everyone's practiced it before. It's just, you know, firefighting exercises. So what do you guys think of this? We, we discussed this topic kind of briefly uh, before the show, and it was brought up that there are certain uh, people have the opinion or certain organizations have the opinion that you should never roll back. And I think what they mean by that is, is a rollback traditionally, you think of it as, well, we've deployed something and then we're going to sort of undeploy it. And this kind of goes back to is a rollback a release or an actual rollback. And their idea is, well, if something is broken, you always roll forward and just fix whatever is broken. Do you think – and, you know, uh, it, Facebook has, has sort of taken this uh, approach, it seems, where they more just if, – if a bug happens in production, they go and fix the bug. What, what's your guys' take on that? So I, I think that works beautifully if you have that as part of your company culture. So Facebook, for example, based on some of the articles that I've read, you know, whenever um, I guess Chuck Rossi's team is doing a, a release, the developers who coded up the feature set or whatever, they have to be around. You know, they might not have to be physically there with uh, him and his team, but they have to be available in case something goes wrong. So not every, you know, not all companies have that as part of their culture, as part of their release management, uh, if, if you can call it that, uh, policy. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I, I think it really depends. I, I think that's the best case scenario. Uh, worst case scenario is, you know, you obviously don't have any kind of development team around and basically have a bunch of ops guys who are kind of, unfortunately, um, stuck unless somebody wants to go in there and, and, and hack code, which probably isn't a good idea. But I, I think maybe some kind of a middle ground. I mean, not every company has 
uh, obviously the same kind of money and resources that Facebook has. So maybe something where you know uh, the 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 developer kind of has to be available, and not only that, they 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 have to work with the ops team to to test a robot plan and staging and, and kind of iron those details out before this stuff goes into production, just in case something does happen, either that or, you know, a developer or a set of developers says, okay, uh, I don't have time to, to test this stuff, to test the rollback. Uh, they, I don't think that's an excuse, but whatever, you know, for, for whatever reason, they, they, they may say that, that. And instead, I'll be available when you guys do the release. Well, I think, you know, that's a really good point. I think also another thing to consider is whether or not you're working with a technology where you can actually do that. So, for example, I, I think there's a lot of buzz about, you know, rollback, and, and this is something people think about, but it, that buzz often occurs in, in discussions about web applications or software as a service or something where at least you have control over that. You know, certainly there are cases where if you have a mobile app or uh, you have a, a desktop, a client app, doing a rollback in that context is actually totally different because if you push up out that update, you know, maybe another update won't get through the app store for a couple days. And, and so I think you need to take into account the uh, architecture of your particular application, your particular system end-to-end. -end. I, know, I know some hybrid systems where the software as a service side is actually easy to roll back, roll forward, or, or deal with it in that sort of context, but they have a client application and it has to go through the normal update process, or maybe it contains drivers that need to be signed by a third party. So you can't, doing that rollback in that context is actually a different ballgame. Which actually brings up kind of an interesting issue, question for you guys, risk analysis. You know, if you deploy some code and it, it doesn't work, what type of things do you consider, you know, when you do a rollback? In terms of, should we do a rollback? Should we cherry pick a fix? Should we uh, do a new full release? Well, kind of for for from my side on, like you know, production game stuff, there were, and I, I really these this this really kind of changed how I you know changed and shaped how I thought about these things. There was a clearly defined set of like I guess uh, levels. So if the you know if if a game had been down for X number you know say an hour, then you did this. You contacted these people, and it was you know it was it was a run book essentially, and it was basically if the game has been down for this long. And you cannot do a rollback for whatever reason. Go to you know it's it's basically like call CEO button, right? And well, so it was it was very it was so clearly defined that if if for whatever reason a rollback couldn't be done, then we had a ser you know there was a serious discussion because every every minute that game was down was was effectively money loss, subscription money loss, right? Well, that's an actually interesting point, and, and maybe something that I haven't seen as a, as part of a lot of rollback plans, but it's something I always discuss with my clients, and it's sort of this checklist or state machine about what you do when there's a problem, because you know there's a lot of studies that talk about in aviation and in uh, the medical industry and in emergency rooms where you actually want to be making rational decisions based on specific data that you can objectively get. But people may be stressed in an ER situation. You know, People may be stressed, they may be tired. And that's exactly the moment when you don't want people trying to rationalize doing the fifth rollback or rationalize mm -hmm. doing a cherry pick forward, you know, whatever it is. You actually want them following the flowchart when that's been designed, when everybody is calm, 
Yes. And everybody has thought of all the things that could go wrong. That's that, and I and I'm I'm a huge advocate of that because that's that I've had that in the past, and it's been a okay. Very very bad things have happened. Let us now look at the flow chart. What does the flow chart tell us to do? Right. Like, right. Praise be to the all knowing flow chart. And, <laughs> well, and, it, and it's super helpful when people are you know losing. I've seen completely rational, logical, uh, you know, brilliant people absolutely crumble under you know in in these kinds of pressure pressure situations well maybe if we do this no 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 we we look at the flow chart we do what it says right um and it's definitely it's it's sometimes a really powerful mechanism that overrides people's impulse to crazy well so and this is an interesting point i mean after you've gone through a rollback situation too i think a really important thing is to have uh, and I see this intermittent, you know, inconsistently done. Have a good postmortem about what went wrong. What do we need to add to the playbook? What What are we never ever going to do again? Because that command caused the log processor to blow up. Or are we going to action items that you never would have thought of because it was never tested that way? I've I've seen some amazing postmortems on on that. Uh, my my favorite one was uh, was basically we were never in a habit of releasing on Fridays. Mm. For this particular project, you just you just didn't do it. You know, somebody once long ago may have recalled that it was a company mandate, but that had long been forgotten. Right. And so somebody's like, "Hey, well, let's just get this feature out." Now we always released on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tuesdays and Thursdays, like clockwork. Players would expect us to be down. You know, we would smoke test everything. Perfect system. Somebody pushed for a release on a Friday. They said, hey, you want to push this? I was like, you know we're not supposed to release on Friday. They're like, oh, no, it's, it's totally not going to break anything, which are famous last words. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, broke everything. <laughs> How long did it take to clean that up? It took, it took about an hour to clean it up. It was, it was a simple rollback, thankfully. There was a condition that they hadn't looked over. It hadn't updated network code somewhere because someone was, you know, oh, it's easy. We'll just cherry pick this fix. And the best thing that came out of that was someone high up the chain said, guys, why did you release on a Friday? <laughs> and, and it was, he was like, now let us reiterate. And there was a company-wide email that was like, let us, let us remember these words again. Thou shalt not release on Friday. Yeah. And it was just a saying, you know, it was, you know, people going home early. It was to catch all of those exact situations. And it didn't matter if there was code being released on Friday or with the quality of the code being released on a Friday, you should always say no, no, don't do that. There's, it's going to break. Um, and so that was a great, the, great outcome of a postmortem of ours. Was just, just don't do that. Here lie dragons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yusuf, do you have any uh, rollback horror stories? Oh yeah, uh, the, the one that I'm thinking of um, specifically is is due to kind of uh, environment mismatches. And to kind of cut a long short, uh, long story short. Basically, what happened was is we, we had a, a, a release and uh, kind of quickly fell to, to, to bits, uh, mainly because um, the developer was um, coding up against a dev integration environment that was completely different than um, uh, what QA was uh, testing against. And I don't want to get into too many details, but let's just say that after that whole debacle, the, uh, the business kind of looked at this and said, uh, you know, maybe we should spend the extra dollars on getting uh, better environments and such setup. So I, I, I think it's rollbacks can 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 occur due to a number of reasons, but uh, environment mismatches, in my experience, has been probably the number one reason. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, one of my worst rollback horror stories, and it, it's interesting, a, lot, a large part of my background is actually client uh, software. So we were putting out a release that was a relatively minor release, and pe- because it was a minor release, uh, one of the developers was actually the only developer off on this release branch, and he was tasked with fixing like five bugs, and, he, and the release was going to be three weeks long, and then a week of QA and release, and then we were going we to be done. And we started this release like the week of Thanksgiving. And if you do the math on that, a month from a week from Thanksgiving is Christmas. So it was, you know, QA team, myself, and this engineer running this release. And to make a long story short, basically QA, the week of Christmas, right before everyone sort of left, found this particular bug in in an update, one particular update scenario. So the developer fixed that bug. And then they found a bug in the... There were two update scenarios. Then they found the bug was fixed in one, but broken in the other update scenario. And we went down the road of, no, I can fix it. No, I can fix it. No, 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 it's fine. I can fix it. And I think we ended up doing five or six versions of that patch to get every installation and update case correct uh, across the two different installation types. So the matrix was actually pretty large. Uh, and, and I remember having my laptop at the Christmas dinner table and my family all looking at me like, what are you doing? Because we, we <laughs> you know, we didn't, I was doing a release from the Christmas dinner table and nobody went, wait, 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 what are you doing? Just, we're not shipping that particular little bug fix in this release. We already had the five things that we wanted to get done in this release. That never happened and it never happened because it was like that, push to, to 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 your point Seth earlier about the the flow chart we didn't have that and there was like I can fix it yeah this, I, 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 this I, I got it fix. just just one oh no it's just it's just a I just need to change this variable or yeah. I just need to cast this differently no it's yeah. never that simple it's no. never that simple yes yeah all right well we'll be back in a moment here on the ship show Well, welcome back. So uh, for the last segment this evening, we're going to do our tooltip segment. And I believe Seth has a discussion of Vagrant. So Seth, tell us about Vagrant. So if you haven't, if you're not using Vagrant right now, you, the first thing you should go out and do is go to vagrantup.com. Vagrant is, is, a, is a gem, or at least it started as just a gem. Now it's actually available as an installer, which embeds its own version of Ruby, um, which makes it very nice to deal with when you're on a system with an already complicated installation of Ruby environments. Vagrant works with Oracle's VirtualBox, which is a free virtualization service or so, a piece of software. So you can you know, virtualize all of your Linux environments, Windows environments, what have you. Vagrant takes the automation further. So with Vagrant, you can just, you basically define a set of base boxes. So I can have a, a box that is, say, a, pre, you know, a stripped-down version of like the latest Ubuntu. And then you just drop a file in a folder, a Vagrant file, and in there it has a bunch of different options for it. If you don't choose any of them, by default, it's just going to pull whatever box is, and you just do, in, from a terminal in that folder tree, you just type Vagrant up. 
that boots your your vagrant instance. Now, a lot of the problems people have with setting up, you know, virtual you know, virtual environments on their machine is they've got to forward ports. They've got to do all these manual steps that they always forget. Vagrant kind of takes care of all that for you. It automatically remaps SSH for you to, to a different port, you know, high in the range, so 2222, for example. And then when it does all of these things, if you're inside of that, still that folder structure, I can just type Vagrant SSH. Now, Vagrant already knows the passwords for it, and Vagrant already knows what port it's set on because it's got that information in its configuration file. This makes it a very easy way to just deal with multiple VMs, all completely headless, so I don't actually have to boot up console windows or anything. And you can just Vagrant up to bring it up, you Vagrant destroy to destroy it. It's disposable virtualization environments. To, to kind of put the icing on the cake for all of that, because that's already really nice and really awesome, especially if you need to test multiple platforms on your dinky little laptop. Okay. So where where are these these VMs are running locally on your virtual box instance? Is that yes, that is correct. They're running locally. You can run as many of them. I mean, as many of them as your you know as essentially your your machine can handle. So how do they handle? I, I noticed it's it's uh, for Mac. They have it for Mac and Windows and Solaris actually, which is interesting. Um, and Windows. Sorry, I was going to ask about the licensing. So how do you, how does it handle like the Mac OS licensing and the Windows licensing if you're Oh, so Windows, you actually have to, you're going to actually, for most of those images, they usually put it with a key or they put it in the, they basically put it in the state where it's going to at, look for an activation key as soon as it boots up. Mm -hmm. um, you can also provide it, I'm pretty sure, for the Windows version's answer files. For OS X, VirtualBox, if you want to do the, if you want to try and hack it, because Vagrant isn't made to tip, to typically run like, you're, you're not usually running windowed operating systems in Vagrant. Mm -hmm. It's typically something that is either Linux-based and is using SSH for communication. So as far as, I don't know how they handle the window, or the OS X licenses. Um, it's already a pain enough to get OS X running on VirtualBox. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would be something that you would necessarily want to automate if, if it was given, given the pain that it is and the limited usefulness of doing so. It's but it's also not it's not one of the use cases that uh, Vagrant is actually targeting. So, so you mentioned too uh, that it was written in it was started as a gem. Is it really for Ruby apps, or is it like can you kind of do anything with it? Have well, you can do anything with it. I mean, it is it is written in Ruby, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily meant to. It's I mean, it's meant to control virtual environments. So you can do things, I was, I was mentioning, you can actually take, uh, you can actually provision these little vagrant virtual machines with Chef, either from, from a server like Hosted Chef or using Chef Solo. Um, or you can use Puppet, or you can even have it just run a shell script to kind of provision the machine, you know, kind of a, as like a post script. Mm -hmm. um, so it has a lot of these, so that's, that's mainly what the, the kind of target focus is, is so I can just boot up a VM real quick and have it, you know, load a series of cookbooks or something. Um, for myself, I use it a lot for, you know, testing cookbooks. I want to see what it's going to look like on a machine that, you know, has already been installed, you know, uh, with these particular packages in this particular order. And it, so it makes, it makes that very useful. But it's, I mean, you could use it with, you, you can do it to, it can accomplish just about anything, but it is targeted for virtual machines. So I'm not sure what else you would want to use it for outside of that. So it sounds like this would have been a great solution, uh, Yusuf, to the problem you were describing in the last like, segment about environment differences. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't, but that particular issue that I uh, talked about, I don't think that Vagrant existed or either that or I wasn't aware of it yeah. back then. So, Vagrant yeah. kind of makes that leap because you have, you have, you know, production environments and you have staging environments, but what you're developing on is not, is sometimes, compl- you know, wholly far removed from what, what may be actually running in production. Um, yeah. I've seen that before where, they're like the developers are running Windows, you know, a Windows version of a server client, and they're the only ones who actually run that. The actual game production servers run Linux on the back end. So, you know, there there's some sometimes where it'd be a lot more sane to say, oh, let me just compile it, run it, test it locally, and Vagrant allows you to do some to mix and match that uh, with your your build and release processes as you see fit. Nice, nice. Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've heard of Vagrant before, but never at this level. It's kind of one of those things you hear people throwing it around, and it's basically, you know, the cool kids are talking about it. But uh, uh, I'm glad that uh, you're able to walk us through what it uh, what it can do and and why we should uh, look at it more. I think he's implying that I'm not one of the cool kids. No, actually, what I'm saying is you are one of the cool kids. Oh. I'm not one of the cool kids because <laughs> I'd I'd only heard what it was. I'd never actually played with it myself. So. Come on, Seth. You're 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 a cool kid. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, my 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 self esteem is now is now back where it needed to be. Yeah, we did a rollback of your oh, excellent self esteem to the to the higher <laughs> level. All right. Well, uh, so yeah, we as I mentioned earlier, we have the uh, RSS feed configured and set up. So feel free to just subscribe to us there. We're also in the iTunes Music Store, which is great. If you have a topic you think we should be talking about, go ahead and shoot us a tweet at Ship Show Podcast, or you can always email all of us here at the Ship Show at crew at theshipshow.com. And so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And from Austin, this is Seth Thomas signing off. All right, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.